All right, let's uh, begin with the word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, the fresh um, bed of snow and blanket of snow that we can enjoy. Uh, we love to look at the beauty of it, and uh, often it reminds us of how you have washed away our sins and, and um, made us as white as snow as, as Isaiah um, prophesied. And, and Lord, we look forward to the day when we are completely cleansed of our sins, where no, no more will be, we even be tempted by sin, but we will um, be able to be made new. And uh, we're thankful for the process that you're working in us now to change us and to, um, to sanctify us. We pray that you would illumine us uh, illumine our hearts now as we look into your word and, and reflect on how to study your word properly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been working through the process of how to study the Bible for ourselves, and the first step in that process is observation. Observation is simply noticing what the text says. We want to understand what the author is saying, um, and our job there is just to look. We just look at the text, the bare text, for what it is. And this is more of a um, surface level sounds kind of shallow, but this is more of a broader uh, look at the text. So we're, we're just kind of taking a broad scope of what's going on. So again, it's more like a telescopic view or, or maybe a helicopter flying over um, the ocean. And then the second step is to interpret or to dissect the text, which is what we've been uh, considering last week and what we'll consider today as well. And interpretation is understanding what the text meant or what the author meant. Um, we're, we're now, instead of hovering over the ocean of the text, we're actually diving down in and we're trying to explore it. We're, we're doing more of our detective skills. We're wanting to ask questions of the text, find out what it says, what it means. Um, the, uh, the goal of the observation part of our study is to find out what the theme is or maybe the main point of the text. And then the goal of the interpretation is to find out what that means. And uh, then the final step is application, taking what the text means and applying it to our lives. So um, the way that we understand the author's intended meaning is, is through the context. Context is king. Um, we talked last week about interpretation being both an art and a science that it supplies us with the basic principles which are true for all of literature that, that the only thing unique about interpreting the Bible is that we have two authors we have one human author and we have one divine author and so in that um, we, we recognize that, that while there are going to be differences in how each author talks about something there's not really any difference in the whole scope of the Bible there's no contradiction even um, cross authorially if that's the word um, across, uh, across authors, there's no difference because we have one unified divine author. So we'll talk about that a little bit more today. And then uh, under dissection of the text there on the front of your handout, when our interpretation is correct, it will per perfectly align with our illumination or with, I should say, the Holy Spirit's illumination. And when we have not uh, perverted God's illumination, it will perfectly align with our interpretation. So um, we need to move on from the elementary and really wrong thinking of, um, you know, I can just sit here, I can look at the text, and it's just going to come to me. You know, the Holy Spirit's somehow going to speak to me, 
Um, that, that's not biblical. Uh, instead, we need to do the work of interpretation and pray that God illumines us with the Spirit and, and ideally His illumination is lined up with our interpretation. You, you recognize that this isn't always the case, right? If, if the Holy Spirit only spoke to people, we didn't have to do the work of interpretation, then why would there be so many different interpretations, right? The, the fact is, is the, even people who do work don't automatically line up with God's illumination. Why is that? Well, it's because that we're finite. We don't know things fully. We, we, um, we are incomplete in our thinking. So, interpretation requires work. And, um, and so, these principles here that we've, we started last week will serve as a check on the false claims for illumination. You know, this is what God said to me, or this is what the text means to me. Well, what does the text actually say? Because if we're going to claim to speak on behalf of God, then we better make sure that we know how to, to interpret the text. So, ten principles of interpretation. Um, we looked at the first five last week. Let me quickly review those. Number one, the correct interpretation is found in the words of the author. So, whatever he means, or whatever he meant, is going to be found in his words. We can't dig into his mind. We can't have an interview with him, um, except for what he's written down. Um, we... we know the mind of the author, human author, and we know the mind of God from the words that are given. We can't know Him any other way. There's no um, mystical, ethereal way that we can know God apart from His Word. This is how we know God. So, uh, the people who are, are constantly saying that they know God and they've had these great experiences with God and, and yet are not uh, consistent with what the text says then um, they don't know God. It's not enough to um, to uh, just say you have a relationship with Him. You have to actually know what He said. Secondly, what the author meant is the only correct interpretation. So, again, we're trying to get back to the meaning. We don't want to come to a text and we have five different people, you know, the Bible study approach, you know, uh, which has actually become very popular where... You just have a bunch of people sitting around in a circle and we all just say what this text means to me. And, you know, that's not ultimately, uh, that's not a good way to say uh, what we're doing there. Okay, If we're doing a Bible study, which is not unbiblical, but if we are, then uh, we need to make sure that, that we were trying to understand what the author means, not what, what this means to me. See, because if five different people say this is what the text means to me, then... Um, then uh, and, and they're all different interpretations, then uh, probably most of them are wrong or perhaps they're all wrong. And so we have to be careful about that. Our goal is to find out what the author means, not what this text means to me. Uh, I think what they mean when they say that, by the way, when people say that, is probably what this, this is how the text applies to me. But I would suggest that we can't get to the application until we first understand the meaning of the author. What did he mean? He can never mean what he never meant. The text can never mean what it never meant. So it can't mean something for me that it never meant for them back there. Um, number three, understanding is in the mind of the author. Again, the mind of the author is only found out through his words. So um, the goal of our interpretation is find out what the author uh, what, what the author meant. It's to know the mind, ultimately the author, the, the main author, God. We want to know his heart, his feelings his intentions, not just his laws and his expectations and desires. And the only way that we can know the mind of God is by looking at the text. We need to understand the text. Number four, the author 
intended his readers to understand him in a plain, ordinary, normal way that is literally, not allegorically. So we don't have to search for a deeper meaning or a secondary meaning. You know, so we go to the Old, Old Testament text. Well, you know, these don't really uh, work for us as much. So let's try to find how the cross fits in here. You know, the crimson cord that comes down from Rahab's house, that must be the blood of Jesus. You know, there many uh, sermons have been preached on that. And so, um, you know, that that's digging deeper into the text than what, you know, than what God intended. We, we're actually taking a secondary meaning, what's called a, uh, a uh, what is it called? Um, the opposite of, the opposite of, um, the opposite of a plain, ordinary way. I can't think of the theological term, but it doesn't really matter. What is that? Extraordinary, yes. No, that's uh, not the one I was thinking about, but... Um, but anyway, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that we make sure that we have the plain, ordinary text. So we want to understand the author according to the j- genre and the the, uh, the nature of writing that he's doing. So he could be using figures of speech. We can still interpret that literally. Um, but in literally, I mean that we're understanding that he's using a figure of speech. Or he could be using a play on words. That's okay. But we can't... L- we can't add those things to text which never intended that. So that's part of the work of the interpreter, which is why, um, you know, the, the understanding English is so important. And what I mean is not the English language. I can understand people when they talk. What I mean is uh, grammar and uh, syntax, uh, which seems unimportant and unnecessary, especially when you're going through school. But I would recommend it's one of the the most important um, tools that you can gain as a young person and as you get older. So uh, as much work as it is to, you know, go back and do all the diagramming of the sentences and try to figure out what the parts of speech are, um, it, it is worthwhile in order to understand uh, something. Now, we, we are complex uh, human beings in that we can understand people generally based on how they do it, but, but when we get into some, some difficult sentences and some difficult uh, sentence structures, uh, it's helpful for us to know what is the main subject and what is the main verb, what's the object of the verb, how, how does this prepositional phrase um, connect to the rest of the sentence, does it, um, does it, does it support the, the verb or does it support the, the noun, and, and all that stuff is important because the Bible is written in normal human language. And obviously we've had it translated the English language. So so the way that we're going to understand it is by breaking down these sentences. And um, and, and I think um, if we're going to understand it literally, then it, it requires that we have some basic understanding of, of grammar and syntax. Number five, the right interpretation is the author's meaning and the purpose does not determine the meaning. So this, this is um, this is this can be dangerous to. Uh, it can be helpful to understand the purpose of the text. So why did Paul write this? Um, why did Paul put this paragraph here where it doesn't seem to really be in place? Um, that can be helpful to help support, but but the danger is is that if we try to supply a meaning that's not there, and make that the purpose. So the the example I used. Last week was in Leviticus 18, where it, 
uh, God forbids homosexuality. And what homosexuals do is they use that text, anyone who want to be somewhat faithful to the Scripture, um, they actually, to, to, in other words, to justify their homosexual activity, they say, well, that was only talking about idolatrous homosexual activity. So what they've done there is they've taken a clear prohibition against homosexuality and said, see, the meaning of that or the purpose of that was only to prevent the people from idolatrous homosexuality. So any other kind of homosexual, homosexuality is okay. So what they've done is they've, they've forced a purpose out of the text which has, which has supported their understanding of, of what it means. And as a result, they've actually um, they've done damage They've spoken, um, they've, they've spoken actually the opposite of what God is intending there. So, meaning uh, a purpose is important. And you're going to find when I start a, a text, uh, a start, start a book, I always um, try to think about why this was written. Why was Paul writing to the Corinthian believers uh, in the first century? Um, why was he answering, what, what was he doing here? It seems that he was answering questions about how they could conduct themselves and how they could um, settle some of these differences that they had. There's a lot of things going on. So that actually helps us to understand what he's doing. But we need to make sure that we get our purpose from the text rather than just kind of just supplying it or or, um, doing hermeneutical gymnastics with the text. All right. Any questions on those first five? Number six, understanding must begin with what is known from the Scripture and proceed to what is unknown in the Scripture. Understanding begins with what is known from the Scripture and proceeds to what is unknown. So to understand something, we must begin with what we know and then use that to make sense of... When I say unknown, I'm not saying you know we can't know it. I'm saying that something we don't understand. So... Maybe a simpler way to say that would be we need to use the clear texts of Scripture to interpret the obscure texts of Scripture. Okay, so when I say obscure, I mean uh, those texts that are not clear, those texts that are hard to understand. We take the clear text of Scripture and use those to interpret, and, um, and uh, it's actually one of the principles that we're going to talk about later, which is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So we move from what is biblically clear to what is biblically unclear or biblically obscure. And as we do, we take the clear along with us as a tool. So sometimes you, you might hear some people try to argue that when you come to a text of Scripture, you need to come with a blank slate, right? Just wash out your mind of everything that you know so that you can just look at the text without having any presuppositions coming to the text. But I would suggest to you that that's not a wise way to do it. This, this whole process of observation I'm talking about is, we're, we're not using commentaries at this point, at this first step, but we still want to include our presuppositions about what we understand about the, the, the Bible because otherwise we, end up, um, we end, up, end up with some heresy, quite frankly, right? Turn to John chapter 10. Let me show you an example of, of a cult that has formed as a result of this kind of foolish um, biblical interpretation. John chapter 10. That is that they've taken this passage out of its context, and, and I would say both out of its immediate context and its broader context, 
and they've used this to form a doctrine which is extremely dangerous. See, they haven't used the clear text of Scripture to help inform this, what I would say is unclear passage, and as a result, they've, they've, um, they've built a whole religion around it. John 10, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So Jesus here is commending people who call, um, to, who, who call others gods. He's saying, you know, do you not yourself call other people gods in a sense? And he says, when I come and I say that I'm the Son of God, you say that I'm blaspheming, but you can call each other that. And, and out of this came um, the Mormons' idea to say that Jesus was only God in the sense that, that we can become gods. right? And that is, um, that, that, that in Mormon theology, that a person can actually attain to godness. They can actually work their way up to godness. And Jesus was one of those people who did that. And so what they've done is they've actually destroyed the doctrine of the, the deity of Christ, right? And they've actually exalted the, the doctrine of humanity, which actually ought to be the, um, the idea of depravity, that we are totally depraved. Um, and, and it takes away... Um, the foundation of the other clear teachings of Scripture that say that, no, that we are not able to reach godness. So what was Jesus talking about when he was saying that, that we are gods? What was Jesus saying when he was liking, when, when he was comparing himself to other people who were calling themselves gods? What was he saying there? Well, we know that what he, um, we know that, that we, like him, are, okay, in some sense, sons of the Father. Right? So, we are sons of God, and Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we're not in the same sense, but we have some, some likeness in that way. And, uh, I think probably this more is to the point is that we are God to the world in a sense, that we are kind of the hands and feet of God. We're the mouthpiece of God, right? Um, Listen to Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. God said to Moses, I make you as God to Pharaoh. That wasn't small g there. He says, I'm making you as myself to Pharaoh. You're going to speak on behalf of me. It's going to be as if I'm right there. You are my representative. So in that sense, we are, and, and we don't want to go around calling ourselves this by any means, but, but what Jesus was saying was true. But we also have to recognize from other parts of Scripture that Christ is different from us in that we are not of the same essence of the Father, nor can we ever be. Okay, we are made in the image of God. We're not the, we, we are not the express, express representation of God as Jesus is, Hebrews chapter 1, right? Um, Jesus actually is God. He is the essence of the Father. He is the essence of, of, of God Himself because He is God. We are not. And then also... Um, Jesus was a special revelation of the character of God in John chapter 14, verse 9. He says, Have I been so long with you, and yet have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
how can you say, show us the Father? So that's something that we can't say about ourselves. We can't say to, to someone, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. Uh, because we are not God. We are not in the essence of God. We are not the essence of God. We, we are um, not like Christ in that way. So when you come across an unclear passage like John 10, we need to put a question mark next to it and then press on. And, and before we settle on an interpretation of it, we need to surround the passage with information that we know. So let's look at the broader context of the Bible and then what, what does the book itself say about people being the Son of God or the sons of God? And then let's look at the near context. What does it say within the, the chapter or what does it say within the paragraph? See how we're narrowing our context and, and that way the clear can serve as a light to the unclear. We're helping take, this is what's called, the, the theologians call the analogy of Scripture. That Scripture is interpreting Scripture. So we're looking at a text that's helping to inform our theology and our overall theology is helping us to inform our text or the way they say it is our exegesis informs our theology our theology informs our exegesis they're constantly working together so that so that um, we're we're improving as we go right we can't come to a blank slate to any with a blank slate to any text and just say let's just understand this for what it is that's where heresy comes from uh, we need to have an overall. We have, need to have some kind of overall doctrine, but our overall doctrine doesn't come from any other place than studying individual texts. So we need to make sure that our overall doctrine is constantly being refined and informed by what the text says. Now that doesn't mean changed, like a full-on transformation where we're going from. Well, you know, I used to believe in the Trinity, but now I don't. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say refined, I'm saying that that we have some areas of improvement that we need, don't we? And as a result, um, the scriptures are going to help inform us and to, to strengthen our understanding of the text. Any questions on number six? Yeah. Yeah, which is amazing, especially considering the Jews when they wouldn't even use... I mean, they didn't, this would probably be the word for Elohim in the Old Testament, but, but here, they wouldn't even say the name Yahweh. You know, the Jews, and still they won't say to this day. Um, they say Jehovah instead because they saw that as the covenant name for God and it was sacred and it should not be taken in vain, and so they actually wouldn't even write it on a page. Um, in fact, even the translators of our Bible... Um, the the uh, I should say the the people who copied the manuscripts uh, would actually take the name Yahweh and write in the name Adonai instead, which is another name for Lord, but it wasn't the covenant name for God because they saw that as sacred and and so the fact that they would use a term like that, like it's probably the Elohim and I haven't looked back in there, but the fact that they would use that term, um, yeah, that is Elohim because Elohim is a plural and he says you are gods there and. Psalm 82.6. Um, the fact that they would use it flippantly, or maybe not flippantly is not the way to say it, but, but loosely um, is, is a bit surprising. So, yeah, something to, to think about, but, but certainly the, we can't go as far as the Mormons go and say that we can become gods. Which that wasn't the point of Psalm 82. That wasn't the point of Jesus in John 10. Number seven, the meaning must be determined by rightly, what's the blank there? Dividing, right? Second Timothy 2.15, if you 
learned that in Awana and King James Version. That's where that comes from. Um, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this requires our sensitivity in two areas. One is progressive revelation that God did not reveal Himself. He didn't do a data dump, you know, where He just like, okay, here's everything I want all mankind to know about me for all time. Boom, here it is. Instead, He He revealed Himself to His to humanity over a period of time, right? Uh, for example, Moses. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll save that for for later. But but beginning with Moses and ending, probably Job really um, was maybe 500 years his contemporary. But but Job and Moses, and then all the way to the Apostle John in AD 95 wrote Revelation. God progressively told us more about Himself, so that John had a lot more information than let's say David did. Right? David had a lot of information. He had the Pentateuch. And that was significant, but but John had a lot more because he's on this, like we are on this side of the cross, and so God has revealed Himself progressively over time. The way that Paul talks about it is, you know, the, this mystery has been revealed to us. It's a mystery that the Old Testament saints didn't understand fully. They knew that there was a promised Redeemer coming, but that's about all they knew. Um, they didn't know who He was. They they knew, you know, He's going to be from Bethlehem and and that he was going to be from the tribe of Judah. Um, but, but they didn't know that he was going to be the... They didn't understand that he was going to be the suffering servant, even though it was there for them in the Old Testament. There's a lot of things that we now know because we are on uh, this side of God's progressive revelation. The second area that requires a bit more thought uh, is that God has given his people a somewhat different stewardship for different ages. In other words, there are different covenants or different administrations for different times. And these ages are not gradual cultural changes and and neither are they applications needed to make the Bible more palatable in our day, more relevant. These are ages defined in the Bible by its author. So um, this is what's called dispensationalism. This is what we believe here at our church. And um, God has revealed himself to us. Something like raising children. You know, I did not give the same commands to my children when they were three years old as when they were 13 years old as I will when they're 23 years old, right? Um, There are some commands that were only specific for a certain time period. For example, I might have told my three-year-old daughter she is not to cross the street without her mother. But I don't want my daughters at 13 and then later at 23 to keep that same command. Right, that, that command was meant for a certain time period, but now things have changed. Trying to pass on more responsibility to, to our older children. However, there are other commands for my children that would be the same for all ages. Right? Like, don't blaspheme the name of God, or don't act selfishly, or don't steal from your neighbor. But all my commands could be applied because they all reflect my nature. For example, the 23-year-old... Uh, could apply my don't cross the street without your mother command from from when she was young. She could use that to see that I have a desire. It reflects my nature. I have a desire for her safety. And so maybe that is applied for her in what? How could she apply something like that, even though that's not the command she has to obey? Okay, cross safely. So look both ways before you cross the street, even at a 23-year-old. That That's a good... Thing, even though, you know, the command at, at three was, you're not allowed to go without your mother. 
So here we need to recognize that that the, the Bible describes certain ages where God's specific code of laws changed. These are not different ways of salvation. Salvation is always the same. How, how could you describe the salvation that would work for Adam as it works for us and, and through all the ages in between? What's the, what's the quick way to describe salvation? How does salvation come? By grace, through faith, in whom? Okay, they don't know Jesus. We could say the Christ because they had the promised Redeemer. And even back to Genesis chapter 3, right, they had the promise of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so we have a promised Redeemer of some kind. So that's why um, the, the most helpful way I've, I've uh, heard it summarized, I think Dr. Compton helped me with this. I might have modified a little bit, but basically by grace, through faith, in the promised Redeemer. It doesn't change. Now, we have more information about who that promised Redeemer is but their eyes were looking forward to the same person that we're looking back to, right? And actually looking forward to because we're waiting his return. So that when we're talking about different administrations or different dispensations, we're not talking about different salvation. Like they got saved by the law, we got saved by grace. No, they were not saved by the law. That's what Romans 1 through 3 say, right? No one can be saved by the works of the law. Uh, in fact, only it, it only showed them their wickedness. So here are the different dispensations you see there, uh, the seven dispensations. Um, and uh, we have a class on this. Uh, when is it? It's about a year from now. A little over a year from now, we'll have a class that will detail this, have a lot more detail. So I'll, I'll hold off any more comments for that. Any questions on number seven? Number eight, the author reveals something about the meaning through his explanation of the historical culture. So we want to understand the mind of the author. We understand the meaning, but some of his meaning comes through the culture. And so it, the the culture of that time. Again, we, you know, one of the difficult parts about interpretation I started this class out with is that we live, what is it, 5,000 miles away from the Middle East where this all took place, and we live um, 2,000 to 4,000 years away from the time in which it was written. So we we live in a different time and a different culture. But the Bible is full of cultural information to help us to know what things were like during that time. For example, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman took place or took on a special significance when when John included in his um, in his narrative, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So that helps us. Oh, okay. Well, at that time, Jews and Samaritans saw each other as enemies, so it didn't make sense for Jesus to be there. And, and those kinds of cultural details are, are helpful for us to understand the meaning of the text. Outside, cult, outside cultural information can be helpful. So you can find just loads of books, libraries full of books on the culture of the Bible times. And those can be helpful in filling in the details and illustrating the passage, but I would suggest that it should never be used to determine the meaning. And even worse, it should never outside cultural materials should never be used to change the meaning of the text. What do I mean by that? Um, uh, if you go to Israel, from what I understand, it, it helps your Bible to, to take on a kind of a three-dimensional effect. Uh, Pastor Talbert went, I think, two or three times in the time that he was here at our church. 
And since then, he's now moved down to Hoopston, Illinois. And since that time, he has done a number more. I think maybe four or five more since that time. He loves going there. And he's gotten to a place where he's actually leading uh, guided, guided tours through Israel. If he can get a certain number of people to sign up with him, then he gets his trip paid for. So he loves it. And, um, and he's good at it, and it helps him to... to uh, and I haven't been there myself, so, so I can't speak firsthand, but, but from what, I've told, what I'm told, it, it puts more of a, a three-dimensional effect. You, you start to recognize that, oh, you know, that's why in the text it always says no matter which direction you're coming from, you know, north or south or, or, or east or west, that, um, that they always say that they were going up to Jerusalem. Well, that's because the terrain is such that Jerusalem was set on a hill, and so wherever you came from, you always were going up to Jerusalem. And and so some of those things can can be helpful. Um, but but if your guide tells you something that's not found in the Bible, then we shouldn't use it to interpret the Bible. For example, if 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 a teacher says Jesus was a stonemason because most builders were stonemasons, or you, you ever heard this one, the eye of the needle? You know, it's it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And say, people say, well, the eye of the needle was actually a gate in Jerusalem. It was kind of small, and the, the camels had to duck down underneath it. It was really difficult, and that sort of thing. That's that that kind of stuff actually changes the meaning of the text. That's not what 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 Jesus intended when he was giving that story. So, in other words, the primary um, place where we find cultural information about the Bible is in the Bible. Okay, so. So we've got to be careful when we go outside of it and try to use that to interpret the, the text of Scripture and actually change the meaning. That's, that, that's dangerous. Number nine, we've already touched on this a little bit, but I'll uh, focus on again. Scripture, interpret Scripture. The Bible is different from all other literature. Again, we already said it has two authors. It has, it has the 40 different authors plus God. So you have a human author and a divine author writing the same text. But the Bible also is, in one sense, a library of 66, um, I don't want to say disconnected books, but different books, right? They're, they're, they're different. Um, Ezekiel is not the same as Jude. Uh, they're, they're different styles, different lengths, different points, different themes. So each book has a different message. But the Bible has one author, and so God supernaturally inspired each of these 66 books so that while they are diverse, right, they're different, they are still unified because they have one author. They're diverse because they have different authors and different points, different emphases, different time periods, different even cultures in which they were uh, written, and yet they have one divine author, one, hum, one, one divine author who has one intended meaning. And so, if we want to understand the author's overall intended meaning, we don't have to go to an individual text. Instead, we go to the whole Bible. And we want to find out what's God's overall meaning. And, and that means that even though these 66 books have diversity, there is no contradiction. There is, there's only apparent contradiction. There's no real contradiction. Apparent contradiction is, wow, that doesn't look like these two things square up. Like I was talking Hebrews 4, 
Hebrews 6, where it says that a person who comes so close and who actually tastes of the Spirit can actually fall away. Well, that sounds like someone can lose their salvation. If that's the only text of Scripture I had, I might believe that. But I have John chapter 10 and Romans chapter 8 that tell me that a person cannot lose their salvation, right? So now I need to take these two texts and see how do I, how do I um, understand which one is true? And again, we go back to the earlier point, which is that the clear texts uh, interpret the obscure or the unclear texts. So um, we have John 10, we have Romans 8 that are very clear. The person cannot lose their salvation. So we, we know Hebrews in 4 and 6 um, mean the same thing. And he must be talking about something else. That is, someone who's made a profession of faith, they've gotten close to the assembly, they've tasted of the benefits of the Spirit, and then they've, they've turned away from God and have been eternally condemned. So we need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. This, again, is why it's important for us that we ought to be reading through our Bible regularly. Um, uh, and uh, this might be a good time to just encourage you. Um, you, you might have fallen, fallen off the, the pace of what you wanted to do at the beginning of the year, but you got a new year coming up, and I, I try to encourage you throughout the year that it's never a bad time to get back into it. Um, and, and I try to also encourage you not to try to worry about catching up. Just when we try to catch up. We have two or three months behind, and then we just feel overwhelmed, and we just can't ever catch up, and so we give up again. So get back to what is today's reading. Today's reading is two chapters. I can do two chapters, and we just get through that back to that pace. And we just want to. I I I don't know that there's any specific command that says you have to read through your Bible in a year. There's there's not. Okay. Uh, but but I would just encourage us by for sake of wisdom and for sake of knowing God is to read through the Bible as many as you, times as you can before you you lay down the final time in the grave. Um, just just use your time to to try to understand the bigger picture. Now there there it's good for us to settle down in a specific text and do what we're talking about here and dissect it. But it's also good to have this overall picture so that when we get into the individual text like we do every week, we have a broader understanding of the Scripture so we can say, oh, this is how this text that I was just reading this last week applies to this, or how it helps to interpret um, what we're looking at. I mean, have you found that to be the case, that when you are reading through the Scriptures regularly, that, that you found in the preaching specific examples in other parts of the text that, that were not even brought up? Right? You just that That's the nature of, of how God works. He... He often helps us to, to, to learn from the text of Scripture even when someone doesn't explicitly teach on that text that we were reading. Um, so, again, there, there are apparent contradictions. There are no real contradictions. And uh, I could give some more examples, but I think I'm just going to skip all that. Let's go to number 10. The more immediate the context, the more significant it is for understanding. Okay, the more immediate the context, the more significant it is for understanding. So we've looked at many factors that help us in understanding. We observed that we first observed things like the author's style and the type of literature. We considered word studies, culture, author's intention, other scripture. And now we come to perhaps the most determinative, determinative aspect of interpretation. That is that the final arbiter for all interpretation 
decisions is the immediate context. This is what, how we started, really, the class. You know, the most important thing is context. Context, context, context. And the immediate context is, is primary. So, uh, yes, there are going to be some t- contexts that don't help us a lot, like we were looking at John chapter 10. Well, what does Jesus mean in that context? Well, we can go to the broader ones and help us to determine those things, but, prim- but generally speaking, 95% of the time... Uh, oh, Jonathan, can you let... That door unlocked. Oh, he's good. Sorry, that was great coming in. Um, so the immediate context is the final arbiter for all decisions regarding the meaning of a term or a concept. So we, we we talk about word studies. You know, we we try to study a word in a specific way and and try to see how it's used in other parts of Scripture, and that can be helpful. Uh, that's why it's good to have a concordance or an index in the back of your Bible uh, to use and just see where this word is used elsewhere. But I would suggest to you that how Paul uses a, a word in one context is not necessarily how he uses it in another. So if we're, let's say, for example, we're looking at Philippians 1, we're looking at how Paul uses a specific word in Philippians 1. Well, we don't want, the first place we don't want to go, or the first place we want to go, should not be like John's epistle. Well, let's see how John uses the word. Well, he might use it a little differently. Or. Let's see how Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians. Well, we're in Philippians. So the best place to see how he uses that word is to see if he uses it in the same book or the, even the same chapter. And uh, so immediate context is, is ideal. Um, every word has a semantic range of meaning. And it, the, the determining factor for every word is its context. Right? We, you can't understand what I mean by the word party unless I put it in a context for you. Okay, did I mean some kind of gathering of a lot of people? Um, what's another way to use party? Uh, what's that? Okay, a political party? Thank you. I, I, what's that? Partying? Yeah. Was I using it? How, how was I using it? So, yeah. Um, I threw out a dead-end um, example there and you guys helped me out. Thank you. Um so you need to understand context. Um, so let me just give you an example of this, and then we'll we'll wrap it up here. In John 1:4, we read, "In Him was life," talking about Jesus. So how should we understand the word life? We go to the concordance. We're going to find that John uses the word life 37 times in his gospel, and 17 of the 17 of them are used to describe eternal life. So what's John saying in John chapter 1? that in him was eternal life. The problem with that sort of understanding is that the immediate context deals with Jesus being the creator, the source of life. Right? All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came in, not, no life came into being. He doesn't use that word, but that's the idea. Nothing came into being that did not come into being, or that has come into being. So, so even though John, yes, he uses the word life to describe eternal life without putting the word eternal there often in his gospel, um, that doesn't mean that he's doing it there. And we would actually do damage to the text there in John 1 if we studied it in that way rather than um, in its immediate context. So that's that's ideal. Start with the immediate context. If you can't get any help from there, then start to move out. But again, um, uh, context is is critical. All right, on the back, the goal of dissection is to examine the interpretive issues of the text. So what is the meaning of each significant word? Remember, 
when we were looking through observation, we just wanted to see the overall theme. And so we, we did look for repeated words and phrases. We looked for commands. Um, but, and so we're kind of looking at a broader view. Now we're digging in. Okay, what about this word? This word seems to be unclear. What, what does this mean? Um, so some, here's some governing, governing guidelines as you're doing this kind of dissection. And again, some of the stuff, will just you'll just be doing it while you're listening to preaching. And you'll just be doing it um, without even thinking. But don't force the text to mean something that it doesn't say. Second, don't force the text to mean something that it never meant. Third, don't force the text to mean something that contradicts other scripture. So how to dissect, identify key words. So we're looking for unclear words, theologically loaded words, repeated words, unique words. Um, Secondly, identify any questions raised in the text. Um, so this is, this is something that we, we should try to do is just ask questions of the text because it's difficult to understand what's going on. For example, in Galatians chapter 6 when it says, bear one another's burdens, and then later on it says, carry your own load. So what does he mean by that? And so ask that question as you're reading through. I've, I've read through this text multiple times, and how could that be? What, what's going on there? And then try to answer that from the, the, the text that you're looking at. So we, if we're going to do the work of being a detective of the text, we're trying to find out from the clues what, what's going on. We're trying to lay out the whole scene and figure out what exactly happened. How effective would a def- detective be if he walked up to a crime scene and said, you know what? I'm going home, or I'm going back to the office, and I'll see you later. And and people are like, where are you going? How can you know what happened in this crime if you don't look at the clues? He said, well, I'm actually going back to study criminal history and study what other detectives say about a situation like this. It's like, well, that's not what happened here. You need to look at the clues of this one. And, And I think the point is that too many times we're quick to grab the commentary or the Bible study or the study Bible and and not just look at the text for ourselves. And and um, we want to study all sorts of, I would say, secondary um, pieces of literature rather than the primary piece of literature. Um, so here's the helpful phrase that I think of when I um, study the Bible, and it's from Rudyard Kipling. He said, I have six faithful friends who taught me all that I knew, and this is really a paraphrase. Their names are what, where, when, how, why, and who. So let's just ask some questions. Just remember, we, we wrote those on the board and we just did that when we were looking at 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, in this dissection phase, we're actually getting in a little deeper. So who are these dead believers? Are they Christians or non-Christians? What does it mean to fall asleep? What kind of grieving is Paul talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4? When will this transformation take place? And so on. Just list out all your questions and then after you've asked those questions and tried to do your best to answer them from the text. And again, so far up until this point, observation, dissection, we haven't even looked at any secondary sources. We haven't looked at any commentaries. We haven't looked at a Bible, a study Bible. Um, we've just used our brain, the pencil, and the paper or computer. And I, I guarantee that you will have learned a ton more about the text without any helps up until this point. Now, after you've done that, done the best that you could by answering those questions, that's when it's time to help get some help. Because you want to see if you missed something or how did the Holy Spirit inspire, not inspire, how did the Holy Spirit illumine other people to see this same text? So I want to see how they did it. And, and also, it actually guards us against heresy. Uh, maybe we're going through the text and say, well, this is what it means. And then we look at the commentaries and, 
or in, obviously got to be conservative, good commentaries, but but we look at the commentaries and like, well, this is what we think it means, and and you realize that you've actually you've actually um, taken the wrong view on something. Uh, other other times, maybe the commentaries are wrong. Okay, that's going to require some wisdom, but um, but it's okay to look at study Bibles and commentaries. Just make sure we have good ones there. Try to help recommend in that way, and I'd be happy to help you if you're interested in any specific books or an overall good study Bible. So once you've dissected it and examined each part, now it's time for application, and that's what we'll talk about um, the next two times that we're together. Um, hopefully finish that up on the 1st of January. All right. Well, I've gone way over time, so let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for for your word, and um, thank you for how it instructs us. We, we cannot understand who you are uh, without it, and we cannot live by bread alone. We need every word that proceeds from your mouth. So help us to be able to listen well. In Jesus' name, amen.